Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Rabbi Herbert J. Cohen. He served as a synagogue rabbi and high school principal for over three decades. He's the author of several books, including Kosher Movies, A Film Critic Discovers Life Lessons at the Cinema, The One of Us, A Life in Jewish Education, Texas Torah, Kosher Parenting and Walking in Two Worlds, Visioning Torah Concepts in Secular Worlds. His column, Kosher Movies, has appeared in newspapers in Atlanta, Toronto, and Denver. He also blogs regularly in the Times of Israel and the religion section of the Huffington Post on the intersection of film and faith. Rabbi Cohen resides in Israel with his wife, Meryl. I give you Rabbi Herbert Cohen. Herbert, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Happy to happy that I'm able to talk to you. I'm usually in Israel. Here I'm in uh, the States, so I'm with my son, and I'm happy to be here to... uh, Share some thoughts. Full disclosure, your son is one of my favorite people. Uh, and he is actually, you are a rabbi, and all of his brothers are rabbis, and his sister is married to a rabbi. He is the only one in the family that is not a rabbi. Is that correct? Right. He's the black sheep. <laughs> are, are you holding out hope that one day he'll see the light? or No, I think he's, he's seen the light, but you know, the, the light may be too bright for him. He wants a different kind of room. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're normally in Israel. Where in Israel do you live? I live in Beit Shemesh, which is uh, halfway between Tel Aviv and uh, Jerusalem. Now, I've never been to Israel, but I hear that those are sort of the the extremes of Israeli life, like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, lots of observant people, very religiously animated, and Tel Aviv, much more, it feels a little more like a Western sort of secularish city. Is that, is that fair? or That's ca- fair, yes, it is, yes. I mean, again, in every city, there is always a mixture of people. There are religious and not religious people, people on a, on a spiritual journey that are this is in Israel. But as a general, you know, overall uh, consensus, I think you're on target. Tel Aviv is basically a secular city. Jerusalem is, is a religious city. And I mean, so how, there is that difference. How often, I mean, as someone who goes back and forth from Israel to the States, do you, do you get asked about the state of Israeli politics a lot, about the issue with, you know, Palestine and these sorts of things? I mean, does that come up a lot? Is it awkward to ask you about? I mean, how, how does that, how does your, you living in Israel, does that make people sensitized to that, to asking you about it? They basically have to ask me if I'm safe. And I say, I'm safe. I'm living in Beit Shemesh and I'm living a normal life. Uh, and, and generally, I don't have any uh, political, uh, I shouldn't say any, I have little political interests. Uh, I'm at a point in my life when I'm really interested in, in seeing what I can contribute to the world through my film reviews and through whatever religious instruction I can give people and see by relating to people in a nice, friendly way. And, you know, well, affecting the flag, the fact that everybody's created in the image of God, everybody has a reservoir and potential for holiness. I need to connect to all the old people. So, in terms of the politics, most people don't ask me, and if they do, uh, I'm not uh, focused on the political world either in America or here. It's very complex, and I'm in a sense I'm a tourist in both both worlds. It's I've heard that Israel's future seems 
like it belongs possibly to the more religious just because the i mean is among the secular israelis the birth rates are much more like that of europe or japan or the united states but among the observant israelis there's lots of kids <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right there's no question it's correct so in terms of you know what things will look like 50 years from now i would imagine that the religious elements within israel will be pervasive Again, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I don't know who knows what the future will bring. But based upon what the statistics are now in terms of birth rate, there clearly will be a, a, a growth of the religious sector in Israel. That may also hold true of, of America, too, for that matter. Yeah, well, that's a lot, of, who, who's, a lot of sociologists have pointed out. I mean, one theory, I mean, you know, the evangelical movement really kind of picked up steam in around 19, you know, late 70s. You know, and yes. it's it's kind of leveling off a little bit. But one of the reasons is that evangelicals tend to have more kids than mainline Protestants or secular people. So it's part of the reason that the churches are were burgeoning is they were reproducing. Right. That's true. I mean, you know, that's you know, there's strength in numbers. It's just a reality, and that affects a lot of political decisions along the way. It just the way things are. So uh, I understand that from both a, uh, you know, a Christian and, and Jewish perspective. If, if, I mean, I, I, again, I'm not involved in politics. So I, I read just a review of somebody who's being considered for the Supreme Court uh, who's a Catholic, and she has seven kids. So, you know, she lives a different lifestyle than, than most uh, Americans. She, she has a particular point of view. I mean, I'm not, you know, making any political comment on it, but clearly, uh, you know, kids are, are a blessing, and she has more of them. From a religious perspective. I've also heard, tell me if this is true, that, that what we would consider a secular Jew in the United States looks different than a secular Jew in Israel. That, that, that somebody that's not, that, that doesn't identify as, as incredibly observant in Israel probably is still more observant than somebody who, who considers themselves secular in the United States. Is that true? I think that's true because in Israel, the whole calendar, uh, you know, is a Jewish calendar. For example, the day of rest is Saturday. You know, Friday, whether one is religious or not, there's usually a Friday night dinner at a home, even of a secular Jew. So the whole calendar revolves around the Jewish holidays. No, when, I, when I lived in America, I was wait for Saturday night when I can open up my mail. In in, Jeru in Israel, there's no mail on Saturday. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So therefore, on Saturday, Saturday night is not you know the time when I I can check into my email account, but it's not a time when I'm you know waiting to to become aware of the secular world. And I have neighbors, some of whom are religious, some of whom are not, who kind of, you know, feel comfortable in that different, you know, uh, weekly cycle where everything is emphasized through the Sabbath and even through the Jewish holidays. I mean, I, I don't know when Thanksgiving Day is when I live in, in, in Israel or, or even July 4th. I'm, I, I'm an American. I notice when I'm here and I feel very much part of the society. My father actually was a, uh, a Navy veteran and fought in, believe it or not, World War I. <laughs> so I mean, our, being patriotic was was a big deal. We, we, we never would think of buying foreign cars because we always felt it was important to be patriotic. My father was a uh, immigrant from Russia. He was very much indebted to the United States of America for welcoming him, and you know he was living a persecuted life in Russia. He, he escaped with his family, and uh, there's a great sense of uh, gratitude to living here and being able to uh, exercise one's free choice in terms of one's religion. So um, the Israel experience, to go back to your question, is is different because simply being in uh, a world where the Sabbath is Saturday and everything is different, uh, even if you're not, in a sense, religious by the book, you, by osmosis, 
you know, uh, learn to live a certain uh, religious lifestyle, even if you're not you know, zeroing in on the, on the particulars, on the specifics. And I suppose also there's more of a chance where, let's say, a couple is not observant, but you, again, I, I love that word, osmosis, but they're getting it by osmosis, and then they have a couple kids, maybe they decide they want something more meaningful in their lives, and it's it's probably an easier transition if you're less observant Israel to sort of get back into the swing of things. Maybe it is in the United States where just, again, you're right, there's there's no uh, there's no momentum pushing you towards these sacred traditions. Right. It really it depends on who your friends are, you know, and who you, who you connect with. You know, in my own view, I always view every encounter as special, as meaningful. You know, the fact that we're talking on the, uh, you know, uh, on the Internet now, it means at some point from the aspect of eternity, God ordained that I should speak to you today. What comes out of it? I don't know. The outcomes are in God's hands. But the meeting is somehow orchestrated in, in the heavenly spheres. And we're just... You know, now at this point, we're going to see what happens in the next half hour. <laughs> so this is kind of like uh, right, Martin Buber's great book, I and Now, right? So right, right. so often the way we relate to people is I, it, right? It's, right. it's transactional. And you're saying that, wow, you know, your kind of mission in life is to get as many I, thou moments as yeah, yeah, possible where, where, there's, where people are subjects, not objects, right? Right, right. Right now, you and I are both thou. <laughs> right. That's good. I like that. Thou. It's very medieval, like the King James Bible. <laughs> yeah. No, medieval is, is good sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes a little medievalism never hurt anybody, you know. I, I guess unless it's right. the plague, right? I mean, that kind of medievalism hurts you. But uh, so you are a rabbi. You were, as you said, you're born in the United States. You live in Israel now, and you have this website called Kosher Movies. Now, it's my understanding that you loved films as a kid when you were less religiously inclined. When you became more observant, you're like, look, I, I still want to love movies, but I, I want to sort of see use them less as escape but more as another sort of segue into something meaningful and transcendent is that is that a fair sort of assessment how you got passionate yeah. about kosher movies yeah um i wasn't religious uh, put it this way i was i was traditional but i wasn't really religious in the strict sense but I, my sister uh, martha who now lives in scottsdale used to take me on my birthday which interestingly was december 25th uh and she would take me to new york city to see movies on my birthday and my mother liked movies she also took me to the movies so i was reared on on the cinema uh of course the cinema then was not what it was like today but i was very comfortable uh, watching movies it transported me from my parochial town of mount Vernon, new york which is a small suburb of new york into the into worlds far away you know i had cowboy movies and swashbuckling movies they transported me and gave me a sense of uh, the world outside of my little uh, city in, in in new york uh and then uh, i remember i was uh, present at the first time the radio city musical which is a you know a major uh, film venue for the first uh, showing of shane with alan ladd and they showed it with a wide screen and, you know, my jaw dropped when I saw the screen get wider and wider, and I was transported out west, you know, and I liked that. And um, I kept on going to the movies, but then as I got religious, I went to a religious, I had a rabbi in my community who took me on as a project. He felt I was, you know, ready to sort of grow spiritually. And uh, he, uh, you know, got me to go to a religious summer camp, and I was sort of born again in, in, a, in a different way. I had no idea what I was doing, but I in a sense, did all the stuff outwardly that made me seem more religious. 
because to me that was it. And as I got older, uh, I went to Yeshiva University. I went to public high school, but I went to Yeshiva University as a college student. And I was blessed. It was the first time they had a, uh, a program for students who did not have a Jewish day school education, which was traditional for people going into college level, uh, you know, Judaic studies environments. So um, I began to realize that movies. And as you know, in the 60s in particular, movies began to change. They weren't so simple anymore. It wasn't some of the good guys and the bad guys. I remember watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And for the first time, I was rooting for the bad guys. You know, uh, Paul Newman and Rod, uh, Robert Redford, they were guys I identified with. So I began to have a different view of movies. But I realized that, in a sense, you know, they were very subversive of religious values. And I had to really sort of begin to discriminate between the, the wheat and the chaff of what was worthwhile. Now, what ha along the way, you know, I was an English major, so I eventually uh, I got a, a PhD in, from Georgia State University, and I applied this uh, uh, approach of really understanding that in uh, the world, God, everything God created is for the good, but we have to determine what is good for us, and we have to be able to discriminate between the good and the bad. So I re first related to literature, not movies. Uh, I, had, I, read, I, read a, I wrote a book a while ago called Walking Into Worlds. Visioning the prism of uh, secular literature, and I would consider, for example, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, let's say uh, a, a sonnet by Shakespeare, the line "Love is not love, which uh, which alteration brings," uh, and the idea that you know, how do you develop a sense of real love for somebody? You have to develop a love for somebody's inner qualities. Don't just go by what happens. The fact that they eventually don't look the same as the way you saw them, you know, when they were young, doesn't mean your love lessens, it may grow, and you have to be able to see the internal uh, love. And that corresponds with the uh, statement in the Ethics of the Fathers, which is, do not look at the uh, container, but as, at it, what, don't be misled by the container, always see what's inside of it. So it's again developing a sense of looking at what's inside of it and developing this discriminating ability. So first it was applied to literature, and then when I wrote this book, I had one chapter on film. And then I realize that people see movies and read books, and that if I want to, in a sense, uh, impart some valuable messages about life, uh, I, I can look at films and see them in a, as teaching tools. In a sense, a kosher movie is, all my movies are not strictly kosher in the, in the conventional sense, but they're kosher in the sense that they have something valuable to teach us about life. They can tell us something that's worthwhile. If you want, I'll give you an example. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I, I found on your website, you had a really uh, interesting review uh, of the film, oh uh, shoot, is, what, uh, no, it's escaping me now. I'm, I'm going back to your site here. A uh, Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, and, and you you talk about the there in that film, you have a really interesting kind of reflection on the Jewish perspective on guilt and how it can be a positive thing, right? Yeah. Not not always a negative thing. Yeah, uh, I would say that's just, I, at first I saw that film. I wasn't going to review it because there are parts of the film I felt a little uncomfortable with. But then, what do you find a, uncomfortable? Is it like explicit? Like when you are uncomfortable with the film, is it generally adult content, mature theme? Like yeah, yeah, you know the the the, the kid, the adolescent, you know, is uh, you know having uh, relations with I think one or two girls, and and there's a lot of profanity. But I, I can't review anything if I say I'm not going to review films that have violence or profanity. I stay away from films that have nudity. Yeah, you couldn't even review stuff in the Torah if you kept right, away right, from right. violence and profanity. Exactly. Right. <laughs> 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So my truth, that's what you say is very, very, I think, relevant because that to me is a guide. The Torah includes everything and a lot of stuff is not very nice. But what's interesting is that it doesn't overemphasize and and deal in a lot of sentences with the stuff that really is not nice. It mentions it. That's part of it. That's that's part of life. But we don't have to wallow in it. Uh, And that's what I uh, think about when I write the reviews. I can't avoid the unpleasantness and and profanity. You know, Martin Scorsese is a great director, but his films are filled with profanity. But his films oftentimes have something important to say about life. So my own view is that if it has something important to say about life, if it can help us navigate our own lives, it's worthwhile saying. Now, in Manchester by the Sea, that's a that, that's a tough movie because this guy, he was a sweet man. He makes one mistake in life, a biggie, and he just his whole life is turned upside down. So on an on an emotional level, the picture really spoke to me, really did. And in a sense, what it tells me is that. A guy has to feel guilt. You really do have to feel guilty, but it shouldn't paralyze us. Guilt is good if it's in moderation. So that, to me, is a valuable lesson from Manchester by the Sea. At the end of the film, he finally gets the message because he begins to really relate in a positive way to his nephew. It's interesting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor who was part of the plot against Hitler, in his book Ethics, he says there's difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is feeling bad about what you do. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And often yeah, <laughs> guilt can, if we get paralyzed by it, it can transform into shame and there's nowhere you can go from there, right? Right. Then you, 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 that's not good. As if you, if you, it's, it, it is a statement I don't recall uh, precisely. It's in Pekovos, but sh- shame, uh, guilt, you know, as you point out, shame is, in a, it's, it's a dead end. It goes nowhere. You have to somehow be able to move beyond it in order to live in a positive way. It's not easy, you know, and I certainly can't. Tell somebody how to do it, you know, in a simple way. 
but I think God wants us to rebound. There's a statement in Proverbs that says, seven times the righteous fall and rise again. What does that tell us? That failure is part of life, but failure should not be terminal. It means everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect, but you got to pick yourself up and move on to the next step. It's not easy, but that's what Manchester by the Sea tells us. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that when you mention how films became more complex and more nuanced, and I think, you know, oftentimes the way people read the Bible, whether they're Christians or, or Jews, is very simplistically, like Aesop's fables or something, right? And, and they try right. to sort of <laughs> principalize or moralize everything, when really, you know, the, the ambiguity of God's people, right, is to show you that the story's more about God and his faithfulness, you know, to his people, and less about our, uh, us sort of imitating moral examples or something like that, right? I mean, if you, if you reduce film to that way or the Bible, it becomes very thin. Right. I think you're perfectly on target. You know, uh, as a kid, one of the first films that I saw that really kind of uh, convinced me that films have something meaningful to say, uh, there were there were two films I think that were uh, important. One was called The Defiant Ones with Sidney Curtis. I happen to live in a black neighborhood. And there is, you know, a, a sense that when you live in a, uh, a neighborhood of mixed race that, you know, you sort of have a certain perception of of blacks as they may have a certain perception of whites but when i saw that movie it opened my eyes because i saw these two guys who were in, uh, in prison and they were on a train and the train uh, uh, crashes and they both escape but the problem is they're chained to one another and when they're chained to one another they have to figure out how to live with one another they hate one another but sometimes life is what it is and we have to learn to live with circumstances that we didn't even think about at the time. So that was very important to me because it gave me a nuanced appreciation of relationships between blacks and whites. That somehow we have to find common ground that help us move forward together as a people. Because after all, we're all created in God's image. Another film that had a, uh, you know, an influence, science fiction film called The Incredible Shrinking Man. And again, the 50s, you probably could see it. I don't know, did you ever see it? Yeah, and then the, it was remade. Yeah, and it was remade. There was been a couple of remakes. One of the remakes off the same idea was like Dennis Quaid, where it was this kind of intro with Martin Short or something. But yeah, yeah, I saw the original too. Oh, you're, there was like, so at the end, of, he keeps on getting smaller and smaller and smaller. At the end of the film, the last frame, he's vanishing into you know, nothingness. And he looks up at the sky and he says, at least in God's eyes, I count. And there was a size. In the human, uh, you know, give and take of life does matter and ultimately become nothing. But in God's eyes, we're still something. So that, that, that was, a, was a profound message. You know, imagine, you know, if a person is ill and he sees his strength ebbing away and all sorts of afflictions come upon him. That's a tough, you know, situation to deal with. But if you're a person with a certain spiritual or religious perspective, I say religious more than just spiritual, then somehow in the, in the ultimate scheme of things, we ask for eternity, I still have meaning. My life still counts. Those are profound messages. And I think that films really give them power when you see that unfold before you on the screen. It's interesting. John Paul II, at the end of his life, was very intentional about being filmed in public events with Parkinson's because for this very reason, shaking hands, drooling, because he wanted to he wanted to say, look, just because my health is escaping me, I still ha I'm still in the image of God and I don't have to be ashamed. I thought that was very powerful for a man who became Pope, you know, very virile, you know, like young guy yeah, and, yeah. And, and to be unashamed about his own 
fragility is a powerful statement for a religious leader. Right. It's, a mu- it's muscular Christianity. You know, in <laughs> <a> sense, uh, <laughs> right. Right. Even when there's no muscles there. No, it's interesting. Right. You, you just made a reference to spiritual versus just or religious versus just spiritual. I mean, there are so many people, I'm sure, in Israel, especially in places like Tel Aviv, and they're all over the United States and Western Europe that say they're spiritual but not religious. And my sense is that you think that this is sort of like, uh, it, 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 that these traditions tend to be, deep spiritual traditions, right, tend to be team sports. Like, is that is that a thin kind of approach to transcendence, you think? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what that means. You know, it's, 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 it's so general. I, I'm not saying it's bad. I just don't know what it means. But a person who is religious, I know that he, he conforms to certain rules and regulations. You know, he's, he's committed. He's made certain specific you know, decisions about how he's leading his life. When a person tells me he's spiritual, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's something good. But I don't know. I, I can't translate into, in, that into, into reality in a, in a meaningful way, at least for me. Yeah, it seems like another sort of, it seems like one more consumer good, taking religion and commodifying it, right? Made, making a sort of consumer good where you sort of cafeteria style pick, you know, like you pick right. a custom car, a custom computer, you pick your own custom right, right. spirituality, right? <laughs> right, right. That's, that's true. <laughs> no, I, I, I wonder as somebody who is a lover of film, I mean, John Podhoritz, who's the editor of here in the States, a commentary magazine, uh, great Jewish thinker, center right kind of thinker, he's a film expert and He's talked about how the film noir for America was the 70s, you know, The Godfather, Midnight Cowboy, all these films that were amazing. And he said people went to them, right? Like more people went to the movies more often. He said, you know, now we have everything superhero this, Iron Man 9, Avengers 14. He said also because of uh, the average person can afford, if you're middle class, an amazing television set, right? So the cinematic experience is more produced than home. I mean, is are the golden days of film behind us, especially when you look at like television? I mean, I think the water cool water cooler conversations in the United States are much more around serial dramas on HBO or Netflix than they are around films. Yeah, I have a discussion uh, about that with my son Ben Yaman. He he enjoys series, uh, you know, TV series. Uh, I can't do that because. I can't spend, in my own view, I don't, I can't spend that much time, you know, watching a series. So I limit what I do basically to films, uh, because they're, they're, they're two hours and I can do that and I can write about it. The series, and I'm writing to, in a sense, to encourage people to see these particular films, uh, because they have something meaningful to say. And I, I, I don't feel I can ask people to spend six to eight hours on, on a film. It's just too much time. Uh, so I don't do it. Uh, I just, I just watch films. Now, what's interesting though, is that, you know, I, I don't even have, I don't have a, even, I have a monitor in Israel. I don't, I don't have a TV. So I don't watch local television there. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the films I view are a little bit old because I went from Amazon. When I come to America, I pick them up and then I watch them. Or if I'm at Ben Yemen's, I can watch something that's, you know, streaming. Uh, so that's nice. But movies nowadays are very problematic. And when I, I give a, a, a talk on, on kosher movies, when I, I use not this, this particular trip is basically for family, but I come, I come back, back in November and last year I was traveling to Florida, Stanford, Connecticut, Chicago, giving uh, talks and also speaking to schools in professional development uh, uh, sessions about how to use film in the classroom and how to, in a sense, become a discriminating film goer if you're concerned about your religious values. And one of the things I tell my audiences right away is that if you don't go to movies, it's probably best that you not go to movies because they're basically very problematic and corrupting. 
But if you're a moviegoer from youth or or you really like them a lot, like I do, then at least I'm here to give you some guidance about what might be more worthwhile. The golden age of movies is, as we, as he said, I knew, and I'm older than you, uh, that's, that's long gone. On the other hand, I mean, I don't, I, I may not see some of these, uh, you know, uh, superhero movies, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in independent cinema. And I find some of these films very rewarding, very good. I mean, Manchester by the Sea is one example. It's a small movie, but it has a deep message. There's a big movie. There's two big movies I like, which I'll just share with you. One of which is is a conventional story, but really very well done. And as it's an old movie, Chariots of Fire. You see that? You know, oh, the, the I, runners. I, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, I, I love yeah, it. I wasn't, it was, I was into running when I saw that. And there's, uh, interestingly, the two heroes of the film is one Jewish and one is Christian. I identify totally with the Christian minister. Because <laughs> he sees things, he sees running as really, it's, it's an, a, almost an ethereal experience. You know, he's not in this to win. And when he decides not to run on Sunday, I mean, he, he becomes my hero. I mean, he, he stands up for principle. It's a beautiful film. And also a valuable, valuable lesson about life, how to deal with, you know, setbacks, uh, especially on the athletic field. Another movie that I really liked was Inception, Christopher Nolan's Inception. Oh, fantastic film. What a, I mean, that was a mind bender. I mean, that was amazing. And also tells you, it's an important message there, that if you want to accomplish something in life, at the end of the day, you got to have, like Jacob's Ladder, the ladder has to be firmly planted in the ground. You can soar heavenward, but you can't lo lose touch with the ground. We lose touch of ground. You're in Never Neverland. Who knows what happens? And that's really the tragedy of what happens, you know, to uh, to his wife. You know, he 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 lives in this world where he's operating in the world of dreams, and it has catastrophic consequences for his wife and for his separation from his family. So that theme is a valuable life lesson. It tells us if we want to achieve a lot in life, we have to remember to stay rooted to the world of reality. Don't go off and just dream and dream and dream and lose touch with your horizontal base. Don't the think don't think only vertically. Think horizontally. It's interesting you mentioned Chariots of Fire because I think of of Eric Little and you know it's almost alluding to to the prophet what does Habakkuk say that the just shall live by faith right and he says you know when I run I love how if if you're a Presbyterian you can do this accent you can make a lot of money in this country <laughs> when I I believe I was made for a purpose for China but when I run I feel his pleasure and and then and then when Harold Abrams is asked why he runs later he said because when that gun goes off. I, I feel I have 10 seconds to justify my existence to the world, right? I mean, one is justified by the pleasure of God. The other is justified by his own achievements. And it's just... It's very... Uh, it shallow. seems like two different ways <laughs> to live your life, right? I mean... I like Littles. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. It's a great film. I love the music, too. I, when I run to the beach, yeah. I like to play that on my, on my, on my, on my iPhone, in my, in my AirPods. So yeah. let me ask you this. As a rabbi, I think the, every... Era, faith communities in every era face different challenges, right? Like, like challenges in the pre-modern world, the medieval period, or some are different than those in sort of modernity or late modernity. You know, as culture changes, the the challenges of faith kind of change. I mean, what do you see as 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 for contemporary Judaism? What 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 do you think is the kind of contemporary theological issue or problem dilemma that? has to be grappled with if people are to be both modern and Jewish, to be Jewish. And let's you say, to live in these two worlds. It's complicated. It really is. And uh, I think that one of the major uh, issues is simply we have so much. There's so much materialism. There's, I mean, there's, everything is available to us, you know, and even, you know, in, from a medical perspective, you know, the lifespan is, is, is growing. 
there's a lot of good stuff that, in a sense, distracts us from our central uh, religious focus. It's a problem. And, uh, you know, I, I can't solve it, obviously. Uh, but I see that as a major issue. I mean, it affecting all, all, not just Judaism, but all faiths. You got so much available right now. And as I mean, you know, just, you know, I, I live in a, you know, in a relatively small town. When I come here, I, I'm also guilty of this, you know, and I would say guilty, but I'm, I'm attracted by it. I tell Benjamin, when I'm in Morgantown, one thing I want to do is go to Sam's Club. <laughs> it's like a candy store for me. <laughs> They, they got they got lots of stuff and lots of it, right? Big packages. Yeah, yeah Costco stands. I can't I can't take it back with me, but I enjoy looking at it. <laughs> it's just fun. <laughs> so uh, if it affects me, it affects. I feel it. I don't think I'm unusual. We're affected by all of this, and I, mean, I can't bring it back digital because it doesn't fit into two pieces of luggage. <laughs> but uh, in terms of if I were here, you know, I'd have another. I'd have a larger TV. I'd have everything else. It's a problem. One thing I know that has, from my own perspective, advanced is that now movies are streaming. It's rare that you even have an interest in going to the movies because everything is at home. Sound system, everything. And, uh, you know, I can ask Ben Yaman to find what I want to see on the screen and I can, I don't have to leave my house. So that's another issue. I know what the implications of that are. Well, also, it, it changes film, right? Because it, film used to be a much more communal experience. Right. Yeah. You, you had this experience together and more yeah. and more people are watching films, not with a group of people. And you do lose something, right? You, these reactions to these great scenes, these emotional scenes or these cinematic, exciting scenes, they're different when they're right. shared with a group. Right. Absolutely. But also when you go with a group, you can talk about it afterwards. You can process what you've seen. I remember at the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, in that fiery burst of gun, gunfire. I mean, I was shocked by the ending because I just I wasn't prepared for it. I hadn't seen the West before, uh, but I know I was with a group of people, so we talked about it. And you know, we, you know, we see it by yourself. It's a, it's a wow moment, but you, there's no way to share that experience with somebody else. But uh, you know, it's it's you have to just weigh what if you have to pay a babysitter it becomes very expensive <laughs> to go to a movie. <laughs> so what if what would you say is the quintessential Jewish film? If you're going to say this is the most Jewish film I've ever seen, now the truth is I don't really go out of my way to see Jewish films because I think. Films in general just are very special. So I, the truth is I can't even remember a Jewish film that, you know, is memorable. That I mean, I'm trying to think. Um, let me see. Um, I, saw, I saw a film called Menasha. Recently, it's an independent film. It's about a, a guy, you know, who uh, his wife dies and he has to get, uh, rears a son. Social services want to... Wants to take the kid away, and he's trying to you know keep his life together so he can rear his son and remain with his son. But he doesn't. But the only way they'll let him stay is if he remarries. But he had a, a dysfunctional relationship with his first wife, and even though you know he knows that he should get married, he's he's reluctant to get married quickly. Now this film is not for everybody. It's all in Yiddish. It's with subtitles on in the bottom on English in English. So it's a, it's an independent film in the quintessential sense. I mean, you got to be really interested even to watch this movie. But I found it fascinating. It's certainly not the best film I've seen about Judaism, but I don't seek out Jewish films because I feel, you know, my, my, my book, which kosher movies, you know, critic, uh, discovers life lessons at the cinema and also my blog. And I, I blog weekly in the times of Israel. My, it's not for Jews. It's for anybody, any human being who's interested in seeing movies and, and seeing if they can learn and something from them. And, uh, I don't, 
I don't have any films. I happen to see Menashe. I'm sharing it with you, but it's by no stretch of the imagination, uh, you know, my best film. It's just a recent film that happened to be Jewish. Now, there is, the truth is I saw one film that I did like. It was an Israeli film called Ushpizin. Ushpizin is the, uh, an Aramaic word for guests. It deals with uh, guests who come on the holiday of tabernacles. You know, Jews live in, uh, in huts then, and they bought, purchase a citron. With a, uh, it's a harvest festival, and it, you know, it's written about uh, in the Bible. It's an interesting holiday. And the, the story deals with uh, this couple. They have no money, and the guy, the husband, wants to purchase a citron. And he somehow gets an anonymous gift of like a thousand bucks or something. And he decides to buy a citron for a thousand bucks, which is totally unreasonable. And his wife is going, is going crazy. Well, yeah, we're so much in debt and you're buying a citron, which is going to, at the end of seven days, you know, be no good. And the, the whole uh, story revolves around the fact that on holidays, we should have guests, invite those who are less fortunate. So two old friends of his who are in from escape from prison, and they come to him, and they want to be his guests for a few days. So they aren't religious at all. I'll tell you the spoiler, because I, I doubt if you'll see it, unless you tell me you're going to see it. Go ahead. Reveal it. Okay. So the guy the, the, the guy who comes to his house sees the citron and thinks it's a lemon. And the guy, he paid 1000 bucks for this. And he thinks it's something, and he cuts it in half, and he eats it like a lemon on a salad. Then he comes in, and this guy who, who gave his whole savings to this lemon it's like he's torn up inside. I mean, he, he doesn't know what to do. But eventually he comes to the realization that he did a mitzvah. He did a good deed. He brought in a stranger. He gave him a meal. And the last scene of the film, is his, he and his wife had no kids. And he's, the last scene of the film is that he and his wife, his wife are present at circumcision of their son. <laughs> so even though he lost the citron and he, he did a, a good deed in having a stranger, God, in a sense, rewarded the good deed by enabling him and his wife to have a kid. I would say that's a, a, you know, an extraordinary film. Not Again, not for everybody, but I felt it had it, it rose above the average. But I said that's that's it was an independent film. It, was, it, was, it, it appeared in America. I, I, you asked me for a Jewish film, but generally I like films as you know a generic uh, term. So, Benjamin, your son and I have some friends who do a podcast called Unorthodox. It's a Jewish podcast, comes out of Tablet Magazine in New York. And Al Mohler was a guest who was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention. He asked this question to them, what is the most Jewish film? And Liel Leibowitz, one of the hosts, was like, well, he was on an editorial board making, talking about this very thing a couple of years ago. And they decided that the least Jewish film is Schindler's List because it's really about a Christian messiah saving the world. And he said the most... <laughs> Jewish American movie is E.T. because it's about somebody that comes to the States, looks kind of awkward, talks kind of <laughs> funny, but has a strange inclination to the medical arts and then is successful and beloved. <laughs> yeah. But then he, goes, then he goes back home. That's true. That, that's true. They go back to, you know, it's, it's a sort of double, uh, you know, return home uh, theme, yeah. too. Well, uh, Herbert, thanks for talking with me. And I encourage our listeners to check out your website, koshermovies.com, and get your book. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we meet, meet together on, on, on good, good occasions. Happy I hope occasions. so. I, if I'm in Israel, I'll look you up. Okay, fine. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks, Herbert, for coming on the podcast. You can check out his film reviews at koshermovies.com. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.